Hello there, welcome. Good morning. Welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ. And uh, to all those who are visiting, first time or have been coming around for a bit, been disciple for a long time, welcome uh, to service here. Um, so today, as you'll see soon, we're actually kicking off our new theme. Uh, once we get that full blown with play, there we go. Um, this is our new theme for the year. Last year, we looked at holy, uh, transformation in the Holy Spirit. And um, because not all transformation does take just a year to really occur, actually very rarely, we wanted to continue that theme this year and look at grace-driven transformation. So how can we continue to be transformed after our conversion, but have it really be driven not by the flesh, not by uh, sheer will or by effort, but be driven by grace? So uh, what Rob Taylor talked about, we're going to actually have a Troas night. Uh, Troas night, the word comes from Acts where Paul taught all night. Um, and uh, so we're going to have a Troas night uh, on February 2nd. We're going to do some teaching on uh, Philippi, uh, basically the, ch- the church where the book of Philippians is written to. Uh, because Philippi it was a colony that would have especially understood grace. So it's going to give us a chance to be able to get all the teaching out then so that every Sunday we can just jump right on in. So instead of that obligatory five to six minutes of every sermon of mine in the beginning that has to give background, hey, listen, we have the background, so we're just going to jump on in because everybody was at Troas night, which is going to be awesome. And if you weren't there, if you weren't there, we'll record it. But forget I said that because that'll give you an excuse, but we'll also record it. Either way, you have the background, which is going to be awesome. But hop over to Romans chapter 12. Uh, As we talk about grace-driven transformation, we kick it off this year. This is our theme scripture for the year, Romans 12. I'm very excited. And as we close out today, we're going to sing a song called Sanctuary. Uh, And the words are very similar to what's going on here in this passage. And so we may sing the song Sanctuary semi-regularly this year to kind of give us uh, kind of a reminder of really what the goal is here. And and also remind us of Romans 12, which is a great, great, great couple verses. In fact, you might say that these two verses could summarize the gospel uh, uh, better than any other two, but they, they, they do a great job. It's giving us a full sense of motivation, a full sense of expectation, uh, really th- uh, at the beginning of our Christian walk and throughout our Christian walk. So very, very exciting. But in Romans chapter 12, verse one, we're going to do verse one today and we're going to do verse two next Sunday. All right. So we're going to split it in half and we're going to take a good little hard look at Romans 12, because this will be a, a scripture that we kind of come back to over and over and over again. But in Romans 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So pretty powerful there. He says, therefore, it's really a hinge word. Romans 1 through 11 is all, uh, it's, it's the indicative, it's the theology, it's the information. Romans 12 is a, is a pivot toward, well, now what does this actually mean for us? And so he's actually he's saying, all right, now that we know all this, and he's done a good job already in Romans, people call it the Romans road, which gives us a great, a great um, doctrine of salvation. But Romans 2 basically says, hey, listen, just because, uh, you know, you, you did so-and-so, just because uh, you're religious or just because you said a prayer one time, or even just because you got wet one time in baptism does not mean you're okay, that, you, that your behavior matters. And then perhaps we get a little insecure at that point about our behavior. He goes on to Romans 6, uh, Romans 5, basically Romans 5 and 6 to say, listen, but at your baptism, you actually died to your former way of life. 
and you actually were credited the righteousness of Christ. So God doesn't now see you as like, oh, a better Drew or, or a better, you know, Tiffany Jeffers. No, he's actually, when he looks at you, he's able to say, uh, you are my son, you are my daughter with whom I'm well pleased because he sees Jesus. And that is incredible. And then we move on through 8, 9, and 10. And he's built this whole doctrine basically to say, look how incredible this theology is. But what, for what reason? Well, listen, in view of God's mercy, let's actually offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And so today we're going to look at this verse. We're going to look at what's really going on here. How can we be a living sacrifice? What does that mean? To anybody at this time, the word sacrifice would have meant something. Now, we, we think of something different. We probably think of sacrificial or sacrificing a part of our lives. To them, whether you're Roman or Greek or Jew, a sacrifice meant to kill an animal for God or for a God. The Romans did it quite often. Um, they would have to go to the marketplace and they would have to sacrifice the best cut of the, you know, the little filet mignon there. Uh, they, and they'd burn it and the steam would rise or the smoke would rise. And you'd say, all right, now that's the best part is going to the gods, to the God of what God do you want this time? Well, I want the God of fertility because we're trying to get pregnant. Or I want the God of the harvest because we're kind of hard in our luck here. And so you do that and then you keep the rest of the meat. You also did a drink offering where you pour out a, a drink, basically. You know, like we do that sometimes, like, a pour, like pour one out for somebody. It's called a libation, but you pour out a drink as an offering and say, listen, I give this to this God. And if I do it for God, then perhaps he'll smile upon me. If I do this for this God, the God of Dionysus or Athena or Apollo, then perhaps they will, uh, you know, send that back my way and some good stuff will happen. But here's the thing about sacrifices. No matter what way you look at it with an animal, they have to die. Every sacrifice to them, they would think they have to die. They, they will die. There's no partial sacrifice, right? No, there's this, it's sacrifice. But what's the qualifier here? A living sacrifice. So Paul says, listen, no, no, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that. We actually are going to be living sacrifices. Also, he qualifies another word here. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Some versions say this is your spiritual act of worship. There toward the end of the verse. Very difficult word. We don't really have a word for this. Some words we just don't have in English. It's just sad. We have uh, like those words in Greek that are like of the spirit, we ha- but we have that in English, spiritual, and it has kind of a different connotation. We have of, the, of like the body, of like man, that's like the flesh. We have that, like your sinful nature, your flesh. We don't have a word for like that they had. They had like of your soul. Like it is, we have soulful, but that doesn't really help. You might think of like, I don't know, something else. You think of soulful or like, you know, uh, soul food or soul. It doesn't give us a sense of of the soul of your soul. And he's saying, listen here, this is your, this is your deep, soulful act of worship. So translators struggle. They, they switch between true and proper. They switch between spiritual. They can't really quite get it. But either way, we know that it's deep. It's, it's complete. It's consistent. And so when we look at this verse, we see two incredible adjectives here, two qualifiers, that we are a living sacrifice, basically one that doesn't die. It's consistent. And this is our spiritual act of worship. Well, that's our complete act of worship. It's complete. It's thorough. It's deep. It's all those things that are so powerful. And when you really think about it, and I thought about this uh, in writing this sermon, aren't those kind of the two hardest things to be, really? Especially when it comes to being a disciple, to be consistent and to be complete. That's tough. Now, those of you that are here today, congratulations. You're doing great for Sunday morning. But how are you doing Sunday night or Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday in the middle of the night or Friday when no one's watching? How are you then? 
I know I, that those are the times I struggle. I usually look pretty good on Sunday mornings, right? I make an effort to, right? But, but there's the thing is sometimes we do that. Sometimes we make a sacrifice to God and it dies. And then we go home and we go back to the way we were. And there's no real transformation. It's just, let me just make this sacrifice. Maybe, maybe I went to church and we do the same thing the pagans did. Maybe if I go to church and sing and really kind of give my best, that God will kind of kick something back my way this week. Maybe he'll take away a little bit of my money problems or he'll take away a little bit. Maybe he'll help my wife. Maybe he'll help my marriage. Maybe he'll help my kids. Maybe he'll help me do better in school. You know, you name it. We can, we can think the exact same way. And Paul says, no, this is, I'm calling you, I'm begging you to be a living sacrifice, one that does not die. This is, te- this is tough because instead of being consistent and complete, we're usually inconsistent and shallow. We're usually the opposite. We're usually inconsistent. Just think about last week. Now, this is not like a guilt game, but just play along, right? But think about last week. How many days did you have a good daily devotional a quiet time? Right, okay. Think about how many days did you not get angry? Think about how many days, right, were you sexually pure? You, you know, your eyes did not wander or you did not, you did not covet uh, someone else. Like, just think about it. And we can probably go for a few seconds. I can. Even in communion, you can kind of think when we take the bread and the juice, we kind of reflect on the previous week. But sometimes it's a, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame because we realize, wow. We really have blown it. How many, how many times did I really act in a righteous way last week? I've been pretty inconsistent, uh, especially when we compare ourselves to God, which is the goal, right? We want to be godly. Uh, we, we can tend to be really shallow. Uh, and, not, you know, and a part of this, I think, is because, uh, I think it's because we, we get a little too focused on motivation. Um, you ever been here where you think, you know what? I'm not going to do it until my heart is right. So we get stuck there, I think, because we, we analyze our motivation and we say, well, I don't have a good heart. If I were to read and pray in the morning, you know, it would just be uh, because someone is expecting me to. So I won't. Or if I were to read and pray, I don't even really want to. So why would I do it? We kind of wait for our heart to get there first, but our heart never gets there. And so we kind of struggle with motivation problem. Sometimes we get insecure that we don't have the faith. We think looking at my schedule this week, I just don't have the faith. I, you're telling me that we could have a Bible study? I don't see it. You're telling me that I could have quiet times? I don't know how. I just don't think I have the faith to be able to live a consistent life, to be able to live a life uh, of, of depth, of completeness, of honesty, of authenticity, of genuineness. I don't think I can be real with people. If I was real with them, I'm not faithful that they would really then accept me. And we can get stuck in these two things, but both camps make the same problem. Yeah. Is they put it all in the flesh. Yeah. Is they rely way too much on, I can't do it. And we think this way, though, don't we? Right when we saw this, you know, I felt the same is I can't be consistent. I can't be complete. I can't do that. I thought of all the things I'm doing wrong, but both these camps, they struggle with putting way too much uh, stress, way too much emphasis on the flesh. You know, the first step, uh, the first goal for all of us this morning is to understand that we need help that we need intervention. No one is, is going to be faithful naturally. No one is going to be faithful on their own. No one's going to be consistent spiritually naturally. You know, no one can do that. Think about even Mary Magdalene, right? Mary Magdalene knew that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. She was very aware. In fact, all the apostles were very aware that God, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. It said a bunch. Even his enemies were stationing guards at the tomb. Even his enemies knew this was the plan. He's said it a hundred times. But where are the apostles on the third day? Why aren't they waiting for him to rise from the dead? 
Why aren't they there? Even Mary, who's showing up to like help prepare the tomb, is surprised when she sees Jesus. And he, even as he stands there talking to her, he still has to walk her through it. Because sometimes we think that if we have enough information, we'll be okay. You know, Mary had all the information, but she still wasn't faithful. She still needed help from Jesus. And that's the first step for all of us this morning is me giving you information will not help you be faithful. You gaining more information or more strategy about parenting or life will not help you be faithful. It will not help you be complete or consistent. But we all need to first realize that we need help, that we need intervention. Mary had to put her, you know, she had to like see the holes in the feet and the hands. And Jesus had to be really patient with her among many others. Because just because we see it doesn't mean we're going to get it. We need lots of help. You know, this past week, I, was, I went to go meet a brother, great, one of my best friends from college. He's now a minister in Sydney, Australia. But he was in Hampton Roads for a break. And so we said, we, we got to get dinner because, you know, we're just, you ever meet somebody, or you're a friend, and we were really great friends. And you haven't seen him in years, and you come back, and it's like no time passed, you know. And uh, he would share something, and we just had the exact same opinions on everything, which is great. You love those people, right? And they just share all your opinions. Uh, you know, so that was great. You know, we were watching both of the bowl games on January 1st, and we both were rooting for the same teams, and we were frustrated by the other team for the same reasons. It was great. It was like, I can't stand this team, man. Anyway, it was just a blast. It was all awesome. I was driving home because we, I told Jenny, don't wait up because we're just going to go. You know, we're just, I can't, can't put a cap on this, right? This is Will. We got to just run with it. So I, I'm driving home at 1 a.m., and I hit some roadkill, and I get a blowout. My tire blows out, Okay. And I have that moment where I pull over and I kind of realize what the deal is. And I'm 29 years old uh, and I've never changed a tire. So I thought, I don't know what to do. So you, in the past, I've called AAA, but I don't have, we don't have AAA anymore. And I know that for same day service, they charge you a bunch. So anyway, I was like, I don't want to call AAA. I don't want to spend the money. So I called Jenny and I knew calling Jenny at night, you know, it was risky. Uh, you know, uh, it's, she's, Jenny's awesome wife, great. But in the middle of the night, you know, uh, I just was afraid I was going to get like, what were you doing? And how, what'd you, what was, you know, I don't know. So I don't want to, I don't know. I called her still and she goes, well, just change the tire. And I was like, all right, I will. Bye. So I go, so I, I do what any good millennial would do. And I go to YouTube and I type in how to change a tire at 1 a.m. on the side of the road in between Richmond and Charlottesville. And I watch it and I go, that's easy enough, Right. But it was like five degrees outside, and I, I, and I kept struggling, but I got there. I got there, long story short, I got there, but I could not get the tire off. It was stuck, and so I'm pulling, and I'm pulling, and I'm thinking, I did everything the video said. I followed the step-by-step. I watched two or three different videos, right? And I, it's not working, and then a car pulls up. And you know when you're desperate, you're just like, it may be different for men and women, but I was like, I don't care who this person is, I'm asking for help. Like it's, it, an hour had gone by. I wasn't going to risk calling Jenny again. Like I was just like, you know what? I'm, I am getting help. So I, this guy comes out and he's like cussing and angry and probably under the influence for sure. And I was just like, hey, man, I didn't care. I was like, I don't care. You're a human being. And I was like, can you help me get the tire off? You know, I, have you changed a tire before? And he goes, well, you got to kick it. And I was like, oh, no, don't kick it because... I don't know who this guy is. He looks unstable. Like, what if he hurts my car even more? Anyway, he walks up and he just gives it a kick and the tire pops off. 
And, and so you got to sometimes just kick it, I guess. But what's amazing, and I tell that story for a reason, but the thing is that sometimes we think that the information is enough. And if I could just have enough information, I'll be able to do it. But also what's interesting too about that story, well, I'll hold that off. I'll get back to that. Sometimes we think information is enough, but it won't be. And we first have to realize that we need God's mercy. You know, there's a huge clause there, a huge phrase, and it says, in view of God's mercy. We have to have God's mercy in view, or we will always come back to what we can or can't do through the flesh. And we will always be insecure. We will always be guilt-ridden. We will always be ashamed. And whether that shame is from people or God or some spiritual shame, either way, it will not, it will not be the engine that runs our lives. We will simply be going through the motions. We'll just make dead sacrifice after dead sacrifice after dead sacrifice. And we'll focus way more on what we're sacrificing than who we're making the sacrifice to. And it will get frustrating. It will get high friction. It will get annoying. We will struggle. We will get high expectations. We will get entitled. We will come to church and just think of all the things that did not go well or how this or that did not go my way. And it will just be a rough, rough go of it. If we do not have God's mercy in view, you know, if I met that guy any other in any other aspect of life and he walked up to me and said, I know how to change tires, especially when they get stuck in the middle of the night. I might say, good for you. And he might say, I'm willing to do it for all of you guys. And I would say, that's awesome. Nice to meet you. Goodbye. Because there's a difference between God's mercy and God's mercy toward you. And the title of my lesson today after we look at this slide that I forgot about, which is the idea of pulling mercy and discipleship together. Just imagine I had talked about that already. Is now it's personal. Now it's personal. You know, when something is personal, everything changes. And there's one thing, if that guy says, hey, I can help you change a tire someday, good. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't change me. I just go, great. If we go, Jesus Christ died for our sins, it doesn't do anything. It's just sort of something we say. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Oh, that's great. Might make us feel warm for a few minutes, but is it an engine that will drive the rest of our lives? Will it be our motivation that no matter what comes, we have God's mercy in view? And it won't. It has to be God's mercy for you. It has to be personal. You know, the things in life that, that lose power are the things that aren't really personal. But the things that are personal, they, don't, they never lose power. I have a bit of a trivial example, right? Any, if Christmas. A lot of us probably got texts on Christmas that said, Merry Christmas. But when you get the text that says Merry Christmas, my first thought is always, how do I know I'm not on some like, you know, mass text, you know, where they didn't put much thought into this. There's no personalization. It just says Merry Christmas. Do they even really know who I am? But if it says Merry Christmas, Drew, oh, that's nice. Because I'm like, wow, they type my name. It's not just some listener. They might have copy and paste and backspace, but they did not do the mass text or the listener. That's sweet. But if it's even more personal, like Merry Christmas, Drew, I'm so encouraged by our hangouts the last few weeks, and I'm really inspired, and I love how you, I'm like, that would be incredible. Like, oh my goodness, best Christmas text ever, because it was personal. And even though you might receive 50 Merry Christmas texts, the ones you remember are the personal ones, right? Not the, just the generic ones. And it's the same with God. Is, is it personal for you, or is it still just some generality? When it's a general, we just give the dead sacrifice. It's not personal. It's not personal. You know, God's mercy is going to be the foundation for our motivation. 
But we can't see God's mercy if it's not personal. You know, it's one thing. You know, mercy, you only get mercy if you don't deserve it. It's that famous story of the woman who asked, you know, the leader of an army because her son was a deserter. And so he was going to get shot. And she asked the leader of the army, hey, can you, can you grant mercy to my son? And the general said, no, he deserves to die. And she said, exactly. I know he deserves to die. That's why I'm asking for mercy. That's the whole point is mercy is realizing that I don't deserve this. I don't meet the expectation. He, you're right. He did mess up. He did transgress. He does deserve to die. But that's why we need mercy. And so when we see our specific personal need for mercy, it's one of the greatest things when we sit down with somebody and have Bible studies. And I encourage the whole church to do this this week, regardless of where you are spiritually, is to make a sin list. Dun, dun, dun. To make a sin list from Galatians 5. So Galatians 5, if you're writing that down, and Mark 7. Those are the two, the two big lists. Mark 7, Galatians 5. Make a sin list. But what's amazing about that is we don't like to do it. Even when you kind of study the Bible with someone for the first time and ask them to, they're usually like really kind of weird about it sometimes. Or like they don't do it because it's, it's uncomfortable. But we do it for a reason because it has to be personal. We can sit here all day and talk about general theology, but it won't change your life. It won't mean anything. Sure, you can pass a couple of Bible trivia, uh, you know, fun events, you know, which is really what small groups are on campus anyway, for the most part. Let's just sit around and did you know this and did you know that? And it won't change your life. You'll still go to the party and dress how you want. You'll still go to the party and sleep with whomever you want. It won't change you. It has to be personal. It has to. That's why we study the Bible with people and we call them personal Bible studies because it has to be personal. That's where the power is. You know, I don't struggle with certain sins very much, but other sins are a source of deep shame for me. When I think about people finding out about my certain sins, it's very embarrassing. It's a lot, it's a lot of shame and guilt. And it makes me, it makes me afraid. But what, what happens is when I focus on it, and like what, what the Jeffers shares, when I bring it to the cross, in light of God's mercy, it actually helps me understand God's love all the more. Because when you see the depth of your sin and then you see God's depth of love, it actually powers you. It doesn't make you feel bad and, and causes behavior change because of shame. No, it causes behavior change because of acceptance despite your transgressions. Acceptance despite falling short. That God's love is not affected by your performance, but your performance is affected by God's love. And so that we can actually begin to see changed lives And lives that are not trying to just make people feel better, but really for all of us to actually think and feel differently. Because that's what transformation is, is you become a person who actually wants to be pure. You will actually not want to watch that movie because of its impurity. How cool is that? You will actually want to forgive. You'll actually want to give second chances. You'll you'll want to be able uh, to meet new people, maybe people from different backgrounds that you've never associated with before. You will want uh, to give. Oh my goodness. You'll want to give money. You'll want to give time. You'll want to sacrifice. This is the gift of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. Not Jesus died for your sins. I mean, that's, that's a part of it, but no, Jesus died for your sins so that you don't have to keep living in, in slavery anymore. That's a good news I can get behind. That's a good news that changes lives and it changes everything everywhere in all times. You know, in Luke 22 verse 20, just jot it down. We're not going to turn there. If you can turn there, if you want Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, it's quick, but When Jesus sits down with the apostles at the Last Supper, he explains what it's for. He says, hey, the bread here uh, represents my body, which is going to be torn for you. It's an important ending for you. They're all sitting at at the table. 
This wine will be poured out. And that, that represents my blood, which is poured out. Why? For you. You know, is it personal for you? Because it surely was personal for him. It was personal for God. We can't cheapen God's grace anymore by making it general. It was personal for him. Jesus took on your sin. Your sin that you're so embarrassed or ashamed of, he took it on. You know, it's, why is it personal? Well, because our God did not consider Jesus, his son, too high a price to give you life. That's why it's personal. Because it was his son. It gets really personal. There's a, once again, right? There's a mean person at the store. You go, oh, they're mean. We should probably avoid them. But if they're mean to your son, if they're rude to your daughter, my goodness, I would hate to see anyone be rude to Maya Washington and have to deal with Dwayne. You better watch out, brother, for what's coming down the pipe because that is his daughter. She is his daughter and that is not going to fly. All of us, right? That would be the case because it's personal. When something becomes personal, everything changes. And it's, it was personal for God, not just to uh, you know, give some third-party transaction for you, but to give his son for you, to allow your sin to go on to his son. It was personal for him. It's personal, you know, that therefore what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. If it has cost God much, it cannot be cheap for us. And I think we cheapen it by not really being aware of what really went down at the cross. And you know what we need for that? A God who's merciful. I'm really grateful we have a God who's merciful and not a God who's sitting up there just checking off boxes based on performance each week. But every other religion, that's the case, really. There's no, you can read the Quran. The word grace is in there like once maybe. I read it and I read it explicitly to find the word grace. Not in there. But the word like uh, infidel and and, and, and punishment and vengeance is in there about 150 times, right? Sure, so you can get a sense, okay, what what the deal is there. Grace is unusual. It's different. Mercy, it's different. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what's the difference between Christianity and all other faiths? He answered, grace. Give me another one. Grace is unique. We have a God who is all powerful and all merciful. Think of people in the world who are who have a lot of power. Do you think mercy? When you think about them, we have a God who has so much more power. And yet uh, he's merciful. You know, as we continue and as we close out today. I can find my notes. They popped away. When I um. My gesture, I swiped away. You got to be careful with the gestures. You got to keep it. Keep it cool, man. Keep it cool. As we close out, I want to look at somebody. I want to look at an example of how this actually does change lives. Mark chapter one. We'll look here and we'll look in John and we'll wrap up with this idea of Peter. Mark chapter one. Let's hop over there. You know, a lot of us know uh, Caton. Caton um, was baptized here in the summer. Jesse Lee reached out to him through his work. Caton uh, grew up atheist. Never, ever heard of anything remotely in the Bible. I mean, really, really, really fresh soil there. Um, and came to church and studied the Bible. Caton's um, a guy, you know, actually we got dinner this, a few days ago with Caton. Um, and Caton's uh, a guy, you know, you, you, when you really connect with somebody, and you, you always say this, you want to be able to, 
not just share the gospel with somebody, but share your life as well. And, and Jesse and I felt, I, I felt it especially, but we really felt a bond of friendship with Caden. And for me, I felt it more of like a brother, but also like as a father, knowing that like him going off, only having a few weeks in the church before going back to Princeton to a new fellowship. By the way, our, our sister church up there was non-existent, basically one disciple there. Um, and so thinking about that, okay, we're baptizing a guy who's going to a campus ministry with one other person who's a girl. And uh, the church is a good ways away. They have to kind of combine with Rutgers. Um, you know, there's a lot there. His best friend and roommate uh, is homosexual and engaged, another guy. And it's one of his closest friends. And so that, you know, that was going to uh, obviously be something to talk about there as, as Caton decides to live a godly life, um, you know. And so him going back and all these things and Caton, I mean, everything was new to him. Like, you know, Jesse asked if he would go on an encouragement date, like a double, a double date, an encouragement date. And, and Caton was like, yeah, let's do it. And I asked Caton one day, like, what are you doing? He's like, We're going on, I'm going on an encouragement day with Jesse. And said, an encouragement day? I was like, what is that? And Keaton goes, I don't know, but it sounds cool. And I said, well, I think it's an encouragement date. I think it's a double date that you're going on. And he goes, oh, that makes more sense. So I was like, amen. But this is Caton, right? Just a great heart. He's just down for whatever. He's just a super faithful guy. And you have all these fears and worries because I kept thinking, Caton's leaving and I'm not going to be there. Is he going to be okay? What happens if his roommate persecutes him? What happens if a small ministry is not going to take care of him? What if the driving is going to be too much? And I had these fears and I thought, what if he doesn't make it? You know, I was putting a lot into my flesh. I was putting a lot onto me, what I could do. You know, Princeton had their first baptism in 10 years in the fall. Um, When Caton got there, it was him and another girl. Now there's five disciples at Princeton in one semester. Um, And, uh, you know, Caton's excited. He was asking questions. He came back here. First thing he said to me was, I'm reaching out to my little sister who was in high school. I wanted her to come out, and she's still working on some things with faith. You know, his dad's an associate professor, and he wants him to come out to church. And, you know, I just, I just, I was so inspired because, you know what, I was forced to let go of my flesh and forced to really have faith. And I needed to realize, you know what, I wouldn't, my faith would not be where it is now in that situation if God hadn't said, Drew, you need Jesus. You need me to be able to, to help, help you here. You need some intervention. Sure, you can do a little man-made, flesh-based faith, uh, but it won't, it won't last. It'll be dead, and it'll make you worn out. You know, Peter was the same way. Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 14. Uh, verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish out for people. Fi- I send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Peter was pumped. Peter was like, okay, I'm a fisherman now, but I could also follow a rabbi, be pretty much part of his like, you know, little group, an itinerant preacher. He knew Jesus, right? He didn't meet for the first time. He had heard of him. He's excited. He's pumped. Why else does he leave his nets? He doesn't leave it for some stranger. He knows what he's getting himself into, and he's excited about it. He and Andrew are pumped up. Yes, we'll follow you. Let's go now before he changes his mind. The nets, leave them. I don't care. Go. We're following Jesus. He's excited. You know, it was personal for Peter. Jesus said, Peter, come follow me. Andrew, come follow me. You know, Jesus, it was personal for them. You know, Peter's whole life, whether he's being rebuked by Jesus, because he gets rebuked in Mark 9, uh, I think the parallel accounts Matthew um, 16 or 17, but Jesus says, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. Peter struggled with worldliness. Peter struggled still with basically thinking how people do, how the world does. You know, Jesus had some hard things to say to him. But the last thing that 
Jesus says to him in John 21, and we'll close out with this. What's incredible, the first two words that Jesus says to Peter and the last two words are the same. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what's Jesus doing? Jesus asking three times. The number three is important. Why? Because how many times did Peter deny knowing Jesus to the little girl when Jesus or Peter could have helped? He could have stepped in. He could have done exactly what he was called to do, to be a disciple, but he didn't. He gave into fear. He gave into guilt. He gave into self-preservation. Jesus asks three times. Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. This is a prophecy, right? Peter ends up being crucified. Spread out your hands. Someone else will dress you. You will be crucified. Follow me. You know, the first words that Jesus says to Peter are follow me. The second word, second, the last two words he says are follow me. It was personal for Peter, but it was also mixed with grace. For Peter, grace and discipleship were one and the same in his life. In between two words was a whole life of grace and discipleship. In between two words was a whole life of a failure to perform, a whole life of mistakes, but also a whole life of victories. And it was all encapsulated in those two words, follow me. So for us this morning, church, Jesus is saying the same thing to each of you. Follow me. And all it takes is a decision. All it is is a decision. You might think, well, I don't know if I have enough faith. You don't. As long as you realize you need intervention and need Jesus, we're good. God will work. God will work. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I I can really deliver. I don't know if my motivation's right. That's okay. None of our motivations are right. Just realize that your motivation might need some Jesus. That's okay. We all need him. We all need God. And that is what makes us the church is because we realize we are dependent on the head. We need the head. He is crucial to everything. The practical I have for this week, church, as we think about our quiet times, as we think about our discipling times, how about our prayer times, our friendships in the body? We may feel like these aren't very strong. Evangelism. We may have not shared our faith in quite a long time or invited somebody to study the Bible. You know, my challenge is not to think, how can I do this this week? You know, but the Bible, James 1.22, James 1.22, James says, listen, how do you know how you're doing? Look in the mirror. The mirror is the word. Read your Bibles. Look at Jesus. Spend time looking at Jesus tell parables, him, his stories of forgiveness. Spend time in the word. And that'll be the way to keep our eyes set, right? On not the rock, not the tree, not the lake, whatever you know, else we might run into with the mountain biking. But keep our eyes set on Jesus. We cannot lose sight of him. If we lose sight of Jesus, we're just going to become an extracurricular group. We're going to become an organization that uses business tactics to grow and uh, to make money. And we're going to have a sales pitch instead of sharing our faith. Ah, it makes me feel weird even to say that. A sales pitch. And this is why you should come to church because we have a band and because we have money and because we have this and we're good looking. Whatever, right? We don't have any of those things. We don't have a band. 
We're okay looking, right? Amen. Fair enough. I don't know. How do you really know that? Whatever. Move on. If Jenny was there, she'd say, move on, move on. She's in the back. Keep it going. Keep it going. Just keep going. Don't get lost in that, which I would. But the challenge for the weak church is don't lose sight of Jesus and to keep it personal. Keep it personal. Because if it was personal for him, it surely must be personal for us. And if God did not reckon his son too steep a price for us, how can we not respond? The God of the universe decided, you know what? I'm going to give up my son for you. Uh, and we can realize that if it, was, if it was costly for God, it's got to be costly for us. It can't be cheap. And if we keep it personal, if everyone in this room, if everyone in this room just read their Bible, and I'm not talking like scripture of the day notification. I'm talking read your Bible. Read your Bible. Sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice to do 30 seconds. Sacrifice. Read your Bible this week. Everything else will be great because we'll all have Jesus in our view. In our, in our, in our view, rear view mirror, we'll have the mercy of God. And if that is the case, nothing can stop us. And that makes me excited to see what this week brings. Amen. Let's keep it personal, church. Uh, to, uh, to God be the glory. Right? That's how I usually end it. To God be the glory.